Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! They used them as political pawns, treated them like chattel in a cruel, premeditated political stunt. The White House has denounced Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott for busing and flying asylum seekers to liberal communities, including the island of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. We'll speak to the head of LULAC, just back from Martha's Vineyard. That's the League of United Latin American Citizens. It is unchristian, un-American, and un-Texan to use immigrants this way, fellow refugees. Some have called it human smuggling. But by governors? Is this modeled on the reverse freedom rides of 1962, when Southern segregationists bust black families to Cape Cod and other northern areas? And then President Biden has declared the pandemic is over. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. As over 400 people in the United States die every day of COVID, we'll speak to Stephen Thrasher, author of The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In the Caribbean, Hurricane Fiona has strengthened into a major Category 3 storm, taking aim at Turks and Caicos after it pummeled the Dominican Republic on Monday. So far, most of the storm's destruction is in Puerto Rico, where nearly all the island remains without power as of today. Officials say it could be days before a majority of the island has service restored. Meanwhile, an estimated two-thirds of Puerto Rican households have no access to clean tap water after Hurricane Fiona flooded water filtration and sewage treatment plants. After headlines, we'll get an update from Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez. In more climate news, a new public database has found the world's fossil fuel reserves contain enough carbon to exceed limits set by the Paris Climate Accord seven times over. The Global Registry of Fossil Fuels warns burning the world's remaining supplies of coal, oil and gas would add three and a half trillion tons of greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, more than all the emissions since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Here in New York, the 2022 United Nations General Assembly opened with an appeal for urgent action on hunger, poverty, racial and gender inequality and the climate crisis. During the opening ceremony, 24-year-old U.S. poet Amanda Gorman read her new work, An Ode We Owe. 
Meanwhile, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres appealed to nations to meet the U.N.'s blueprint for peace and prosperity, known as the Sustainable Development Goals. Young people and future generations are demanding action. We cannot let them down. This is a definitive moment. All of you here today and those uh, tuning in from around the world give me immense hope that we can put our hands on the wheel of progress and steer a new course. Ukrainian officials said Monday the bodies of two children were found among the remains of 440 people buried in mass graves outside the city of Kharkiv, which was recaptured from Russian forces during a Ukrainian counteroffensive earlier this month. Ukraine's internal affairs minister said dozens of victims' bodies were mutilated and showed signs of torture. Kharkiv's police chief said investigators are carefully exhuming the bodies to identify the remains and to determine a cause of death. It is very hard to establish whether they are gunshot wounds in the bodies or not. This work will be done during the examination of the body with the forensic expertise. In Ukraine's east, Russia-backed separatists say shelling by Ukraine's military in Donetsk City Monday killed 13 people, including two children. Elsewhere, officials in the Russian-occupied Luhansk region say overnight Ukrainian attacks killed seven civilians, including three children. The reported deaths and injuries came as Ukraine claimed its counteroffensive has for the first time seized Russian-held territory in Luhansk. Russia and China have agreed to deepen military ties between the two nations. Russia's Security Council secretary said Monday Chinese and Russian naval vessels have begun joint patrols in the Pacific. Meanwhile, the United States has dispatched a nuclear aircraft carrier to South Korea for the first time since 2018. The USS Ronald Reagan and an accompanying carrier strike group are scheduled to hold joint war games with South Korea's military off the Korean peninsula. This comes as U.S. officials say North Korea is preparing its first underground nuclear weapons test since 2017. The Washington Post reports the Pentagon has ordered an internal review of the military's use of clandestine psychological operations online, including the creation of fake social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Over 150 fake accounts linked to the military have reportedly been removed by social media companies for violating their policies. Some of the accounts were used to post messages about Russia, China and Iran. Back in the United States, new figures show the Biden administration has arrested more than 2 million people along the U.S.-Mexico border over the past 11 months. It's by far the fastest rate of arrests at the southern border in U.S. history, surpassing last year's record total of 1.7 million arrests. In Texas, a San Antonio-area sheriff has launched a criminal investigation into whether recruiters unlawfully tricked a group of 48 asylum seekers into boarding flights that took them to Martha's Vineyard, an island off the coast of Massachusetts. Lawyers for the migrants say they were given brochures promising cash assistance, job placement services and more. Bayer County Sheriff Javier Salazar said Monday the asylum seekers were instead unceremoniously left stranded. 
What, if anything, did they sign? Did they even understand the document that was put in front of them if they signed something? Or was this strictly a predatory measure, somebody coming and preying upon people that are here, minding their own business and are here legally, not bothering a soul, but somebody saw fit to come from another state, hunt them down, prey upon them, and then take advantage of their desperate situation just for the sake of political theater, just for the sake of making some sort of a statement uh, and putting people's lives in danger. Last week, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis took credit for sending the asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard, saying it's part of a broader scheme by Republican governors to bus or fly migrants to states controlled by Democrats. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. A panel of United Nations experts said Monday Ethiopia's government may have committed war crimes and crimes against humanity in the northern Tigray region. The report by the International Commission of Human Rights Experts on Ethiopia was released as Ethiopia renewed military offensive against separatist rebels in Tigray, ending a five-month-old ceasefire. The commission said Monday all parties to the conflict were found to have committed crimes, including extrajudicial killing and rape. The conflict there has combined with the climate crisis to exacerbate a food shortage in Ethiopia, where some 20 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. In Mexico, at least two people were killed as a major 7.6-magnitude earthquake struck the Pacific coast near the port city of Manzanillo on Monday afternoon, triggering a tsunami alert, collapsing buildings near the epicenter and knocking out electricity to over a million customers. It was felt as far away as Mexico City and beyond. The earthquake struck on the anniversary of two previous major earthquakes, which devastated central Mexico in 1985 and 2017. It came just hours after authorities in eight states held earthquake preparedness drills. Mexico City Mayor Claudia Scheinbaum said there were no reports of major damage in the capital. She said the timing of the earthquake was a coincidence. In scientific terms, there is nothing to say that September 19th is a special day for earthquakes. In fact, there have been three earthquakes in the city on this day. A U.S. engineer who'd been held in Afghanistan since 2020 has been freed in a prisoner swap. The Taliban agreed to release Mark Fruericks in exchange for Haji Bashir Nurzai, who was convicted in the United States on drug trafficking charges in 2008. Nurzai, who had been sentenced to life in prison, was a key financial backer of the Taliban in the 1990s. Secretary of State Tony Blinken spoke Monday. I want the families of Americans who are being uh, arbitrarily detained or held hostage anywhere in the world to know that our commitment to them, to bringing their loved ones home, is resolute, and we will relentlessly continue to focus uh, on doing just that. In related news, President Biden met Friday at the White House with the families of two U.S. citizens imprisoned in Russia, basketball superstar Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. It was Biden's first meeting with the families. 
Back in the United States, a for-profit company that operates prison telephone lines has agreed to pay $67 million to settle a class-action lawsuit brought by incarcerated people. Advocates say Global Tellink routinely pocketed deposits made by prisoners to prepaid phone accounts and preyed on prisoners by charging them exorbitant rates of up to 100 times the actual cost of calls. And in Baltimore, supporters of Adnan Syed are celebrating his release from prison Monday after a Maryland judge vacated his murder conviction. The 41-year-old Syed had spent 23 years behind bars after being convicted of the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee. His case gained international attention when the award-winning podcast Serial re-examined his conviction and raised new questions about his guilt. A Baltimore County Circuit Court judge has ordered new DNA testing in the case, tests that were not available at the time of Syed's conviction. Syed could still face a new trial, but state's attorney for Baltimore, Marilyn Mosby, spoke Monday. We're not yet declaring, not yet declaring Adnan Syed is innocent, but we are declaring that in the interest of fairness and justice, he is entitled to a new trial. Mosby said she'll look into whether two alternative suspects may have murdered Heyman Lee, including one who threatened to make her disappear and kill her. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Juan, I just wanted to ask you first about the crisis in Puerto Rico, where most of the island remains without power for another day after being hit by Hurricane Fiona. In fact, the electricity went out before Fiona hit. Uh, you were born in Puerto Rico. You know, to say the least, you are closely tied. You still have family in Puerto Rico. What are you hearing? Well, Amy, I'm, I'm hearing pretty much what the uh, news accounts have said. I've also been in contact with my sister, who's in Calle in Puerto Rico. Clearly, the electricity is out once again and water, uh, a potable water to most of the, the uh, island residents is out once again. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the reality is that the Puerto Rican people since Hurricane Maria have actually been uh, uh, been able to recognize the fact that the government, when it comes to these crises, is in that many people have been able to develop uh, their own ability to survive. Increasingly, more and more Puerto Rican households are, uh, when they can afford it, uh, have generators of their own to have uh, emergency supplies. And as I was speaking with my sister uh, yesterday and today, they, they've also been able to sometimes have their own uh, water reserves. And my sister has a 600-gallon water tank, uh, basically, for emergencies like this. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, the, the billions of dollars the United States spent to reconstruct uh, the infrastructure of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria uh, w is not as resilient uh, and it's not as the money is not as well spent. And so we've, we're once again faced with the fact that it, who knows how long it will take 
for electricity and uh, potable water to be accessible again to the people of Puerto Rico. And here we are six years into the financial control board that was only supposed to be in power for five years. It's already one year over its original uh, uh, time uh, allotment by Congress. Uh, And we're still in a situation where Puerto Rico, as a result of its colonial condition, is not ready to deal with crises of this type. Well, I want to thank you, Juan. And, of course, we'll continue to cover what's happening in Puerto Rico. Now the storm is hitting Turks and Caicos, uh, went through the Dominican Republic. Um, We will cover that. Alaska, Japan, the typhoons there, and this whole issue of the climate catastrophe. This week is Climate Week here in New York City, and we'll be bringing guests throughout the week talking about this critical issue of our day. Coming up, we're going to look at President Biden's announcement that the COVID pandemic is over. We'll speak with Stephen Thrasher, the author of The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. More than 400 Americans a day are still dying of COVID. Stay with us. We may not have a cent to pay the rent, but we're going to make it. I know we will. We may have to eat beans every day, but we're going to make it. I know we will. And if a job is hard to find And we have to stand in the welfare line I've got your love and you know you've got mine We're gonna make it, I know we will We may not have a home to call our own But we're gonna make it, I know we will We may have to fight hardship alone but we're gonna make it, I know we will. Cause if togetherness brings peace of mind, we can't stay down all the time. I got your love and you know you got mine. We're gonna make it, I know we will. We're going to make it by Mavis Staples here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We begin today's show looking at the response to President Biden saying the COVID-19 pandemic is over. He said it during an interview on 60 Minutes with CBS's Scott Pelley. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's but the pandemic is over. 
Some public health officials criticize Biden's comments, which come as the White House is pushing people to receive newly reformulated COVID-19 bivalent booster shots. According to data collected by Johns Hopkins, COVID killed 13,000 people across the U.S. over the past month, as 2.2 million new infections were reported. Yale epidemiologist Greg Gonsalves tweeted, Sorry, folks, Mr. Biden is dead wrong. 500 people dying per day, second leading cause of death in U.S., we're top in mortality among G7, life expectancy down. He thinks this is good politics? It may be, but it's predicated on accepting the suffering of millions of Americans, Dr. Gonsalves said. Meanwhile, Dr. Monica Gandhi tweeted, What President Biden and the World Health Organization means, the WHO said the end is in sight last week, is that COVID is never over because it's non-eradicable, but that the emergency phase ends when mortality is lower than any time since March 2020 and when we have biomedical advances, she said. For more, we're joined by Stephen Thrasher. He's the author of The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. He's a professor at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University and faculty member of Northwestern's Institute of Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Well-Being. Uh, Stephen Thrasher, welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, why don't you start off by responding to President Biden's announcement that surprise money, saying that the COVID pandemic is over? Thank you, Amy. Uh, I was really disappointed and disheartened to hear what the president said, declaring that the pandemic was over. Clearly, the pandemic is not over. Um, between four to 500 people have been dying every day in the United States. We were just observing 9-11 uh, a week ago. More people were killed in the last week from COVID-19 than were on 9-11. And of course, he also said the pandemic, language matters, was over. And this is a global pandemic. It's global in scale. Although the United States has consistently had a worse rate of death and infection than almost every other country on the face of the earth, uh, we are just a percentage of the, the deaths that are happening. And so about 16,000 people died globally in the last week from COVID-19 around the world, and about 2.5 billion people have not received a single dose of a vaccine. And historically, thinking of uh, HIV and AIDS and other, uh, other pandemics, HIV and AIDS has been a pandemic now for about 40 years. We still have to deal with pandemics as they go on over time. So it was very narrow for the president to say that the pandemic was now over uh, and inaccurate and really insulting to the millions of people who are who are sick and dying. Uh, but kind of at a technical level, the thing that I found most surprising is his administration has overly relied upon vaccines as the way to address the pandemic. And vaccines are fantastic. They've, they've saved millions of lives. But they have to be used in concert with other things that the, that the administration has pretty much given up on entirely. And so it was really surprising, given that we now have this bivalent uh, booster available that could really match the current circulating strain of COVID-19. And there could be nothing worse to be done to um, dissuade people from, from getting that vaccine than to say that the pandemic's over and you don't need to worry about anything anymore. And Steve Thrasher, uh, on that note, the... Uh the message that the president is sending to people as the the new booster is being rolled out and also his uh, his noting that uh, more and more people aren't wearing masks as if that's a good thing. 
Yeah, it's not a good thing. We we have、uh, lots of things that we could be doing to slow down this pandemic, and we need to have a sense of humility、uh, about this virus that we don't know a huge deal about. We don't know how it's going to play out over the long term, and and so we really need to try to minimize the amount of. Uh, actual infection that happens, and millions of infections you know, are, are happening every month.、Um, so people can wear masks, and people should wear masks. And there's nothing that's more difficult、uh, in getting people to do it than if the president of the United States says that there's no need to do so anymore. I really dislike that he sort of said it passively, as if、uh, you know people just aren't wearing masks. As if he's not a leader who could be wearing masks,、uh, he's walking around you know the Detroit Auto Show without a mask himself. And his administration has tried to do certain things that have been stymied by the courts. Their original order to have people wear masks on public transportation was、um, challenged and struck down by one federal judge. But they didn't ask for an emergency injunction. They have not fought to keep those things in place. They have not modeled that kind of behavior themselves. And even under all of this, many of us, myself included. Are in institutions and spaces where we're trying to get people to wear masks. We're trying to have mask mandates on our campuses or at academic conferences or, or events that we're a part of, and it makes it almost impossible to do so to convince organizers that we should、uh, take the step. If the president of the United States himself, president of the United States himself, is saying that we don't need these masks and that that they, that they can't do anything to help. And how does uh, his uh, his statement、uh, potentially affect his ability to secure billions more that his administration is trying to get from Congress to combat uh, the uh, COVID? Well, they've been in a failing state on a policy front with the budget since I think about March or April, and they originally had a spending bill that combined COVID nineteen money. They're asking for about fifteen billion、uh, with a aid package for Ukraine, and they pulled them apart. And they they still spent the money on Ukraine. They've spent I think about sixty billion dollars on Ukraine now, and they've largely seemed to have, have given up on this as as a funding priority. And it's really important that we get that money for COVID nineteen、uh, since March or so. We have not had money. To To pay for people who don't have insurance to get COVID treatment testing as they need it, and research has clearly shown over the past couple of years that people without insurance are the most likely to become infected with COVID nineteen, the most likely to get seriously sick from it, and the most likely to die from it. And so we've just left those people for dead,、um, and we're entering into a situation. We often hear the president and、uh, writers in the New York Times and Washington Post often incorrectly talk about how COVID nineteen is going to be more like influenza, and it's a really False comparison that's being made, and it doesn't ask an important question, which is how can we deal with both of these things? And if we dealt with COVID nineteen right now, we would actually reduce flu deaths、uh, a great deal. But we're heading into a situation、uh, that is quite predicted by flu that has really danger that potentially could have very dangerous outcomes.、Uh, you know, for many years we've had flu vaccines, and, and they also work very well. And we see that the people who get them. Are people who are employed, or people who have jobs with good health insurance, and who see a doctor regularly. And if you see a doctor for an annual checkup or, or twice a year, you're much more likely to get a flu vaccine, which will protect you, your family, and your coworkers.、Uh, and people who don't have insurance, who don't see doctors regularly, and don't get that annual checkup, just get flu more often, as do their children and the elderly people in their lives, the people in their workplaces, and the people in their homes. And because of that, we see these really stark. 
lines around race and income and who's more likely to get flu and die from it. And it is predictably, you know, it's black people and Latinx people, poor people and working class people who are the most likely to get sick from flu and to die from it. And so the president is basically setting up the same scenario again with COVID-19. And when he has his White House advisor saying that this socially experienced, you know, broadly experienced global health phenomenon needs to be moved into commercial products and needs to move into the commercial private health insurance market, we're going to see the same kind of outcomes again. People who have health insurance, who see doctors once a year, uh, are going to be much more likely to get their COVID booster. And those who don't are not because the Congress has not gotten the money and the president's not fighting for that money you know, to, to get this care to people who don't even have insurance. And so this virus is going to pool in, in what I call a viral underclass amongst black people, Latinx people, the uninsured, the poor, and the working class. And people in the ruling class and the political class and media elites are going to kind of think things are fine because they're getting their booster, even as we're not doing the work that we need to do to make sure that health equity uh, happens around this pandemic going forward. So, Professor Thrasher, what should be done? The most important thing, I think, right now, first, is that uh, the president and the Congress need to uh, get money to get uh, treatment and testing to people who don't have insurance. That's already been lost, and, and we've lost a lot of ground around that. Um, we need to, as aggressively as possible, try to use masks in situations where we can. I had mine on until right before we started rolling here in the studio. And if we didn't think masks didn't work, then we would stop using them, you know, in, in surgical theaters and things like that. Um, and then we also need to understand that we have to be very proactive about what's happening with this pandemic. Last week, it killed uh, between four and 500 people a day in the U.S. It is the second leading cause of death in the United States. There are billions of people around the world who haven't gotten any vaccines at all. Those are things that we need to address. And we can't only rely on vaccines. We need to understand that this is all happening in the context of other health matters on a lack of Medicare for all. Uh, here in New York State, where, where we are right now, we're entering into, I think, our third viral health emergency in as many years. We have the COVID-19 uh, viral emergency, the monkeypox viral emergency, and now a polio viral emergency. And even though there are distinctions between these different viruses, the root causes around them, you know, the need to act uh, in an interdependent way, the way to have an ongoing vaccine infrastructure, the way that we need to make sure that people have access to health care at all times, uh, those things would address all these pandemics. We can't keep lurching from one to the next to the next. And as Democrats like President Biden and Governor Hochul, you know, downplay the need for masks, as David Lennart at the New York Times and Leanna Wen at the Washington Post, you know, downplay the importance of this pandemic, we're losing ground on COVID-19 and a sense of social responsibility to one another and a need for an ongoing uh, ability to have health care for everyone that's that's making each one of these viral pandemics much worse than they need to be and creating, creating needless death and uh, needless suffering. Now, it's not just President Biden who's saying the pandemic is over. The World Health Organization gave its most upbeat assessment on COVID-19 since declaring the disease an international emergency at the beginning of 2020. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said Wednesday the number of newly reported infections has dropped dramatically. The number of weekly reported deaths from COVID-19 was the low since March 2020. We have never been in a better position to end the pandemic. We're not there yet, but 
the end is inside. So if you can talk about that, Stephen Thrasher, I mean, he's talking about a global level and also talk about um, how the U.S. has had the highest covid death toll, followed by India and Brazil. How do you explain this? Well, I think that it's obviously it's a good thing that um, that death rates are coming down. I think it's very premature to say that we see the end is in sight with this pandemic. Uh, as I was saying earlier, we're 40 years into an HIV AIDS pandemic, and that virus still takes about a million lives a year. And we want to be very proactive in making sure everyone gets vaccinated on the earth and also that countries are doing everything that they can to make sure these levels are low as they need to be. The United States is uh, in this kind of weird position right now that we've seen both with COVID-19, excuse me, and with monkeypox. And that historically, when we look at other viruses, it's typically uh, countries in the global south, formerly colonized countries where the back where viruses are finding their way the most easily. And in the past couple of pandemics, and including most recently with polio, we're actually seeing European countries, formerly colonizing countries, that are having uh, much worse uh, outbreaks with these different viruses. And I think it has a lot to do with the ways that we don't feel a social responsibility to one another, the ways that we kind of consume travel very easily and have a concept of, of individual freedom in a way that, that dismisses the need to act in caring ways towards one another. Uh, the United States is about 4% of the world's population. We've had 20 to 25% of the world's COVID deaths, uh, you know, a huge share of, our, of the COVID cases. We've had like 35% of the world's monkeypox cases. And I think that this has to do with, uh, you know, with our quote unquote American way of life and the ways that both political parties will engage these engines that create a viral underclass. So, you know, for example, uh, you can trace so much of COVID-19 transmission to prison incarceration, and particularly to local jails, with people coming into jails and leaving the jails, and coming into the jails and leaving the jails. And as they do, pathogens are moving into the jails and back into their home communities. And the reason why the U.S. has such a higher rate of this respiratory virus has a lot to do with that process. And that process continues across parties. You know, there was a huge rate of incarceration under President Obama, under President Trump, uh, and now under President Biden. And when you look at the border, I think the New York Times just reported last night or this morning that we had the first year where two million people, um, you know, have been uh, detained for, for immigration and, and border enforcement and jails and prisons around incarcerating people who are legally seeking asylum and trying to get out of dangerous situations and then putting them into conditions in which viruses move very freely and then are then going to move through their communities. That's one of the engines that is really driving this pandemic. And I, even though the president's remarks are rightfully in, you know, being very much debated this morning and are, are getting a lot of criticism, uh, I think that he is also being informed and he and the public are both being misled by high profile members of the press. And as we, um, you know, as we see members of the press who had gone out after President Trump very critically, understandably and justifiably, a lot of them have not given the same level of criticism to President Biden when so many things around incarceration and fighting Medicare for all and not delivering on the funding package that we needed for COVID-19, those are that's his responsibility. Those are his policies. And those are the things that are driving the pandemic right now. And a lot of the mainstream media has really just not done their job in, in being critical about those things and saying, hey, this is creating the second leading cause of death in the United States. And it's unacceptable. 
And uh, Steve Thrash, I wanted to ask you in terms of the impact of the uh, pandemic on children. Uh, many people who are urge to return to normalcy, say it's especially important given the prolonged uh, isolation that millions of children in the United States have had uh, during the past two years, uh, the, their impact on their, their future development. Uh, what is the alternative in terms of, at the, on the one time, protecting the population, on the other hand, allowing children to develop as normally as possible? Well, there's a lot of bad information about how this pandemic has affected children. And of course, uh, people of all ages have been, have been affected terribly by this pandemic. Uh, children's learning development is not impeded by wearing masks. Uh, Dr. Leanna Wen has written that in the Washington Post. And that really points out uh, something I think is really insidious and really ableist about lots of the ways that we think about viruses and children, uh, is that it has a, an ableist framework. Lana Wen is, is claiming that masks will make children unable to learn. It's not true. Children who are blind uh, develop language at, at the same rate as sighted children. Uh, the roots of the anti-vax movement in the United States have to do with this misnomer that's completely incorrect, that vaccines will cause autism. And the thinking is sort of that if children, uh, you know, parents would rather have their children potentially get something that could kill them, like measles, rather than face the possibility of having, you know, a disabled child. And so the framework is really off. And I think a lot of the worry about children comes from this very ableist way and sort of these these unnecessary places of worry, when in fact, children need to be, you know, they do need to socialize, they need to be with other children. And if they wore masks, they'd be more able to do so safely. If their classrooms had really good ventilation, and if local governments had not been spending their federal money for COVID on police and had been spending it again instead on uh, ventilation, they'd be more safely able to do so. But I think that we cannot just isolate and look at things like test scores and say that it was school closures that made test scores come down and test scores themselves are not the greatest metric for learning anyway. But we can't just look at those things. We have to also look at what the past two and a half years have done. And children and their parents have put in great economic precarity. They've been facing eviction. They've not known from month to month whether or not they're going to get kicked out of their homes. Uh, they've been facing enormous food security. And hundreds of thousands of children in the United States and millions around the world have become orphans. They've lost their primary caregiver. And research has long shown that nothing is more devastating to children economically, emotionally, often even physically, than becoming an orphan, than, than losing one of their primary caregivers. And so, yes, you know, we want children to be together as safely as possible. And that's why we need to mask and ventilate and get vaccination, you know, as, as often as possible. But there are ways that children need to be protected from the death of a loved one and the death of themselves. COVID has been, a, you know, a very big killer of children among the, the things that, that actually kill children. Um, and so we can't just talk about lockdowns or think about the harm that comes from lockdowns, but also admit that this is a virus that could potentially have lifelong effects for children. And we need to have a sense of humility as we study that and decrease transmission as much as possible. And we also need to make sure that they, their teachers, their janitors, their parents and grandparents are safe because they need to be able to raise them. And all of the people in the children's lives need to have enough food and housing security to be able to raise them in a way that's going to allow them to flourish. We can't just focus only on school. We can't just focus on the potential of school closures. And we must look at everything it takes to keep children safe around this virus and in the totality of their lives. 
Finally, Steve Thrasher, your Scientific American piece titled Monkeypox is a Sexually Transmitted Infection and Knowing That Can Help Protect People. If you can elaborate before you go. Uh, certainly. So I've been, uh, like, like many of my colleagues who worked on HIV and AIDS, we pivoted quickly to COVID, and then many of us also pivoted to studying monkeypox this summer. And one of the things that I found um, surprising a bit was that it, it seemed pretty clearly to those of us who study these things that there was a mutation in this virus in the last few years and that a lot of the transmission, the majority of the transmission was happening sexually, primarily through men who have sex with men. And this was a deviation from how monkeypox had, had been studied and understood to exist, but needed to be addressed. Uh, to me, there was nothing embarrassing about it. And I thought, unlike COVID-19, you know, we needed to have really, really clear conversations with our audiences, with our colleagues, students, people in our lives to address that that's what how this is how this virus was moving. And it was important to do so, one, because we didn't have enough of the vaccine and we didn't want people who were not really in the pathway of this virus and, and how it could potentially move, um, you know, to, to be getting the vaccine when we knew the people who were most in the pathway of it. And I also think it was important to talk about this because we wanted to reduce stigma in ways that didn't need to happen. So for example, if this virus is primarily moving sexually, people don't need to worry about being on a subway with someone who is gay. They don't need to worry about dorming with them or being in a classroom with them. Uh, it's not moving kind of respiratorily in, in this way, certainly not the way it did with COVID-19. Uh, people do need to wear masks for COVID-19 when they're in these settings, but they don't need to wear them, you know, for, for monkeypox. And so I thought it was really important to name this and try to deal with some of the problems that we had and the lessons that we learned in COVID-19 about being as honest with the public as quickly as possible with the best information that we had. So I thought we really needed to name that. And I'm incredibly proud of the work that LGBTQ organizations have done, that uh, groups of queer men have done, that um, sex clubs and saunas and gay community centers and all kinds of public health people have really just done a, a tremendous effort over the summer getting to uh, members of the LGBTQ community, getting people vaccinated, you know, trying to help people understand this under very, very difficult circumstances. And it's starting to become a success story as the rates come down. And finally, down. Steve, do you agree with the efforts to rename it? California had public health officials renaming monkeypox MPOX. They say the term monkeypox is a misnomer. It's animal reservoir rodents, not monkeys. It's led to racist uh, stigmatization. The WHO is also looking to rename monkeypox. I agree with the sentiment. I think the window kind of closed. The WHO talked about doing this like three, four, five months ago, and I think that they should have done so at the time because it's very difficult to do so now. But I understand the reasoning behind it. I support it. Um, and if colleagues of mine or publications or organizations ask us to, to stop using the phrase, I will do so. I tried doing that at the beginning of the summer. It wasn't really picked up by others, and it kind of just moved into the language. But I understand the reasoning behind it, um, and it's an, it's an important distinction to make and to always use the, the language we can that is the least stigmatizing and welcomes people into the process of, of getting help and knowing that they're not going to face any kind of punishment or stigmatization if they get help. Well, Stephen Thrasher, we don't want you to miss your plane. Author of The Viral <laughs> Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. Professor at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, faculty member of Northwestern's Institute of Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Wellbeing. Thanks so much for joining us.
Next up, the White House has denounced the Florida governor and Texas governors busing and flying asylum seekers to places like Martha's Vineyard. The asylum seekers say they were lied to. They didn't know where they were going. Is this modeled on the reverse freedom rides of 1962 that Southern segregationists sponsored busing black families to Cape Cod? Stay with us. Eres mi estrella, eres mi luz. Tú me das valor frente a la oscuridad. Eres mi amor, eres mi razón. Yo no me acostumbro a estar sin ti. No sé cómo entender este dolor. No sé por qué te arrancaron de mí. Mi esperanza y mi fe está en volver a mirar. by La Santa Cecilia. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Human rights advocates are denouncing ongoing efforts by Republicans to send dozens of buses full of asylum seekers to sanctuary cities across the United States. In Texas, a San Antonio area sheriff has launched a criminal investigation into whether recruiters tricked a group of 48 asylum seekers into boarding flights that took them ultimately to Martha's Vineyard, an island off the coast of Massachusetts. The Boston Globe reports the migrants, who are mostly from Venezuela, were approached by a tall, blonde woman promising free transportation to Boston. Lawyers for the migrants say she also gave them a brochure with false information. The Massachusetts-based lawyers for civil rights shared the brochure online with, quote, numerous false promises to our clients, including of work opportunities, schooling for their children, and immigration assistance in order to induce them to travel, unquote. Bayer County Sheriff Javier Salazar said Monday the asylum seekers were instead unceremoniously left stranded. Our understanding is that a Venezuelan migrant uh, was paid a, a, what we would call a bird dog fee to recruit approximately 50 migrants from the area around a migrant resource center on San Pedro uh, here in San Antonio. Uh, as we understand it, 48 migrants were uh, lured, I will use the word lured, uh, under false pretenses uh, into, into staying at a hotel for a couple of days. Uh, they were taken by airplane. At a certain point, they were shuttled to an airplane. Uh, where they were flown to Florida and then eventually flown to Martha's Vineyard, again, under false pretenses is the, the information that we have, that they were promised work, they were promised the solution to several of their problems. They were taken to uh, Martha's Vineyard from what, from what we can gather uh, for nothing, for little more than a photo op, video op, and then they were unceremoniously stranded in Martha's Vineyard. 
Last week, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis took credit for sending the asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard, saying it's part of a broader scheme by Republican governors to bus or fly migrants to states controlled by Democrats and vowed to push forward on a $12 million state-funded program to relocate so-called unauthorized aliens to so-called sanctuary cities. I got 12 million for us to use, and so we are going to use it. And you're going to see more and more, but um, I'm going to make sure that we exhaust all those funds because I think it's important. I think people want to see that we're actually standing up and trying to protect the state against Biden's really, really reckless policies. This comes as reporter Judd Legum uh, tweeted that one of the planes used in DeSantis's Martha's Vineyard stunt is currently scheduled to travel tomorrow from San Antonio to Florida to a small airport near Biden's house in Delaware, unquote. Just last Thursday, about 100 asylum seekers from Colombia, Cuba, Guyana, Nicaragua, Panama and Venezuela were dropped off in front of Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in Washington, D.C. The buses were sent from Texas by Republican Governor Greg Abbott. This is an asylum seeker from Venezuela. It was a very long trip, quite tough. We didn't expect to be left adrift here without knowing where to head to. Our objective is to reach New York. As the White House denounces Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott for busing and flying asylum seekers to liberal states, we turn now to look at a largely forgotten piece of U.S. history. This has happened before. It was the reverse freedom rides of 1962 when white segregationists tied to the white supremacist citizens' councils bust African Americans to northern areas, including Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where President John F. Kennedy had a summer home in Hyannis. Black families were promised good jobs and free housing, only to find out they'd been tricked. The Boston public media outlet GBH has closely documented the legacy of the reverse freedom rides. In 2019, the station produced a short documentary titled The Long Journey North. This is Betty Williams, who arrived in Hyannis, Massachusetts, with her family after being tricked into leaving their home in Arkansas. My mother was told she was going to have better everything. She was going to have a job and and she was going to be able to support her family and her children was going to be able to get an education, you know, be able to go to school. You know, that alone was not the truth. So I guess when you get to be an adult, you just kind of block out things or things you just don't want to remember. I don't know what it is, but I don't remember a lot about the bus. All I knew, I was on the bus and I remember them giving me a, 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 a ticket or something like that, whatever. I don't know if I don't know how much money they gave me. I don't even remember none of that stuff. This is me and my mom. That's me, and that's my wonderful mother who has gone on to be with the Lord. We, we didn't really have anything. We just had our clothing. We didn't have uh, furniture and stuff like that we can bring here. Betty Williams speaking in the short GBH documentary, The Long Journey North, about the reverse freedom rides of 1962, 60 years ago. The documentary also featured archival clips of two architects of the reverse freedom rides, the segregationists Amos Guthridge and George Singleman. 
What do you suppose will be the ultimate accomplishment of this program? The ultimate accomplishment, of course, has already been uh, obtained, and that is to focus attention on the hypocrisy of the Northern liberals and the NAACP, Urban League, and people like that especially. We intend to continue it until those uh, people in the majority tell those politicians we are through with this foolishness about uh, civil rights and uh, things that you're using for political purposes. We go now to Cape Cod, where the asylum seekers who were flown to Martha's Vineyard are now being held on an army base. We're joined by Moeline Peters, professor of English and Black Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. He's also commissioner for the Barnstable County Human Rights Advisory Commission and a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Professor. It's uh, so important to have you here today. As you see what happened with these asylum seekers flown to Martha's Vineyard, talk about what happened 60 years ago. Well, speaking to 60 years ago, um, 1962, the White Citizens Council, which was an organization in the South and viewed themselves as a viewed themselves as more moderate than the Ku Klux Klan, but basically also a white supremacist organization. And in efforts to humiliate, um, as they saw, Northern Democrats, Northern liberals, uh, particularly the Kennedy family, this was a stunt pulled where they put um, impoverished people, this would be coming from Arkansas, Mississippi, the Carolinas, and Georgia, um, put impoverished people on buses and sent them directly to Main Street in Hyannis. The idea was, and told them that uh, the Kennedys would be there to welcome you, and they, you know, basically identical to the to what's happening uh, now on Martha's Vineyard, where they were promised all sorts of things. In fact, some were even given money and were sent up to uh, Hyannis. And of course, this was an idea. The idea was to humiliate. The uh, even as the clip you mentioned pointed out, the the target was to humiliate the Kennedys, the NAACP, and the Urban League. And what we found was the stunt did not work. Now we have to first look at the fact that 1962 Hyannis um, was not exactly a multicultural melting pot. Um, you still had you had considerable segregation on Cape Cod. In fact something that a lot of people don't like to acknowledge, but segregation did exist in the North and was prevalent in the North, especially when you got north of New York City. So, um, and this, of course, was known by the White Citizens Council, so the, the idea was, let's show the hypocrisy. What happened instead was getting wind of this. Um, the Kennedy family and the branch of the NAACP actually were uh, prepared and actually were able to provide some kind of welcome, some kind of support, some kind of assistance for the busloads of people who were transported up to Hyannis. So the stunt really didn't work. It, instead of demonstrating hypocrisy, it was an opportunity to demonstrate, no, we stand behind what we say. Uh, Peters, I'm wondering, uh, Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and six members of the of your state's congressional delegation have called on the Treasury Department to investigate DeSantis for using federal COVID-19 relief funds to fly the asylum seekers uh, to Martha's Vineyard. 
your reaction to that and uh, to your knowledge, is that true that the governor was using COVID monies? To my knowledge, that is the understanding that this was relief funding that was being used and this was how he designated um, the best use of the funding. And of course, when you consider uh, how much of the population of the state of Florida lives at or below poverty level, that's remarkably irresponsible. Um, especially given the fact that we're still dealing with the pandemic, you know, despite despite uh, President Biden's announcement, <laughs> we're still very much dealing with the pandemic, especially in poorer areas. But um, no, this requires some investigation. There are a number of things about what has taken place that require a level of investigation. Uh, in, in accord with the um, sheriff's investigation, we're looking at issues of that would basically be human trafficking. We're looking at issues of how many of these um, asylum seekers are undocumented. So, you, so this is improper transportation of of um, basically undocumented asylum seekers. This, you know, beside being remarkably irresponsible, aside being aside from being you know a human rights violation, you're sending people and stranding them in areas, and you're not even concerned about. You're sending people into these areas and stranding them. But we're looking at human rights violations. We're looking at potential human trafficking. We're looking at any number of basically, you know, potentially criminal infractions, let alone just uh, moral and ethical. And I'm wondering also the um, there are some uh, critics of this who say that uh, the governors uh, Abbott uh, and DeSantis are in effect trying to uh, in a situation where increasingly as a result of the Supreme Court decision uh, on abortion, uh, there was a gathering steam among the Demo- uh, among Democrats uh, for the toward the election of, in November that now uh, these Republican governors are trying to utilize immigration. Uh, as a, a way uh, to raise this issue just before the election uh, to curry favor among more conservative voters for the Republican Party. Uh, I'm wondering your thoughts about that. And also that Governor DeSantis, both, most of these folks are Venezuelan. Uh, and uh, there's been a sharp increase in Venezuelans of, uh, at the border, uh, uh, apprehended at the border in the last few months. And uh, the Florida happens to be the state with the largest Venezuelan population in the country. And and Venezuelans are, in fact, the fastest growing Latino group uh, in recent years uh, in the country. And what are your thoughts about those two issues? Ah, loaded, loaded deck. I'm sorry. <laughs> with with the, um, with the issue of immigration, that is something that continually comes up. What we have to look at is American history, and we have to look at the fact that when we look at American history, we also have to acknowledge the fact that a foundation principle of the United States is white supremacy. So therefore, the presence of brown and black people, other than as chattel, were constantly a problem and constantly an issue. When we look at human trafficking, we look at the deportation of native people, of Wampanoag, Nipmuc, and Narragansett people in particular, were exported to the um, to the Bahamas, were exported to Europe, were exported to um, North Africa, were exhibited in parts of Europe, for example. When you consider human trafficking, the, the transatlantic slave trade, this is a big piece of American history. So moving black and brown people around the country 
against, uh, you know, as human rights violations or moving them around the world as a human rights violation is very much, if you think about it, um, an American tradition. And then when you look at uh, people like DeSantis and like Abbott and the whole uh, notion of the MAGA movement, Make America Great Again, the, you know, the, the undercurrent of the Make America Great Again is to go back to these foundation principles before black and brown people were human beings, when, when we were flora and fauna, basically, of um, this country. And this is the treatment that you see still taking place to this day. Leaders, um, do you think this will backfire against these Republican governors? The Washington Post had a piece that at the time, 60 years ago, the New Orleans radio station denounced the campaign as sick sensationalism bordering on the moronic. A Gallup poll then showed widespread disapproval of the White Citizens Council's tactics, even among white Southerners. We have 10 seconds. This is going to backfire. It's going to backfire considerably because you do have to remember that you have a considerable red populace still up in these states and they're being impacted right along with. You have a number of Republicans who own homes on Martha's Vineyard. Well, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Professor Mualim Peters of English and Black Studies at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, also commissioner for the Barnstable County Human Rights Advisory Commission, member of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, speaking to us from Cape Cod. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.